The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Before we get into our topic for today, I want to recap our previous episode for you. In that episode called Stop Falling, Pete took us down a rabbit hole and brought us right back out again. And then we talked about the relationship of medications to falling and the paper bag test. We discussed risk factors for falls in stroke survivors, the downward health spiral that can occur if a survivor falls. We also talked about what to do if you see someone fall. And then we shared some home safety tips for fall prevention. If you haven't already started to follow us on your favorite podcast site, please do so. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a review, we'd really like that. Something I try to tell therapists all the time, when you take all the neuroscience and you look at it all, I swear neuroscientists say, um, wow, repetitive practice, who does a lot of that? And they look down that long hallway and they see a therapist already doing it and having done it since the early 1900s. And they go, well, it should be challenging. Who vectors in challenge? And they look down that long hall and they see a therapist down there. They've been doing it since the 19, early 1900s. And then they go, repetitive and it should be challenging. It should be meaningful. Who does that? OTs do that. Everything. So you guys are in the perfect position to leverage the great neuroscience that we have. And um, I swear, I don't think, I think neuroscientists are like jealous or maybe they're angry or I don't know. But every time they turn around, they see a therapist having done it for decades and decades and decades. It's just take what, here's what I would say. If you want to know what a neuroscience would say about rehab, they'd say, we agree with everything you're doing. Just put it on steroids. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Don't overthink it. Yeah. Okay, are we okay, ready, ready? To get Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Hey, Deb Battistelle, how are you? I'm great, Pete. How are you? 
I'm good. Uh, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about motor learning. Motor learning. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. It sounds complicated. I bet they have PhDs for that. I thought you knew someone who had a PhD in that. I do. I do. I do. My good friend, Steve Page, has a PhD in motor learning. Does uh, that mean he's getting a card? A card? <laughs> <laughs> You know, we can't just be giving cards out willy-nilly. So these cards is this concept that neuroscientists, baseball players should have cards that tell about their significant um, accomplishments and maybe when they started their career, a little story about them, picture of them at front, maybe holding a bat. That would be cool. You know, Steve, I love Steve. He is a minor deity. And I think we should save the which makes me a a minor minor deity. Uh, we should save the cards for the for the big people with names like Mercinich and Ramachandran and Nudo and all the people that we've been reading about lately. We could either have different colors or sizes <laughs> of cards, and I think they should hold brains. Like they should maybe hold a, like slices little, of their brain. No, like we like can a replicate little them in perpetuity. <laughs> This has gotten silly. Usually, we don't get this silly to the end. So this gets. I know. I know. You're talking about like maybe like you have the MLB cards, and then you have the AAA cards, and then the AA cards, and then single A cards, and then the guys from high school cards. We could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out if I will ever get a card. Well, maybe in podcasting. Maybe in OT. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Okay. We've gotten weird already. Yeah. So, motor learning. I want to start out by going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> really? That, that's a shocker. So, as you know, I've done CEU classes and I've done hundreds and hundreds of them. And I did about 90 per year from 2011 till COVID. The thing is, a lot of times when you do these talks, you get the same questions over and over and over again. And it gets to the point where you start answering the questions before they're asked. I mean, there's a certain psyche of people, you know, they come into, uh, you know, a ballroom or at a rehab hospital, a big room, and they get, I think they get a little bit nervous and they feel like they want to give something and they're, and then if they ask something and you don't handle it right, they get upset and it's a whole thing. So often what would happen is you say something like A leads to B leads to C and somebody go, oh, what about D? It's like, yeah, that's where we're headed. And D might be in the afternoon and you're speaking in the morning. And then you got to say, well, we're going to talk about it this afternoon. And that seems kind of rude. So you kind of half answer it. So one of the questions I would get consistently, and this is my point, is people would say, you know, you talked a lot about how to recover movement, but what about cognition? What about cognition? And it got to the point where I really had to answer that question up front because movement is cognitive. There is no difference between learning a movement and learning algebra or viola or how to speak a foreign language. You change the structure and or function of neurons in the brain the same way you do with all those cognitive things. In fact, I'm going to make this argument and I'm going to go back to this sort of evolutionary concept that motor learning is the original form of cognition long before we were learning algebra and how to play viola and foreign languages or any language, we were in an ever-changing outdoor environment moving. And so, I was looking at a picture of the brain today and the functions of the brain, and it is not a surprise to me 
that movement has more cortical real estate than just about anything. And it may be anything. I haven't got my head around it quite. I mean, vision is really big, but movement, it's the cerebellum. It's the motor and sensory cortices, the homunculus. You remember the point-to-point representation of the brain on the body for movement and the body on the brain for sensation. It runs about from the crest of your ears to the crest of your head, then dives down between the two hemispheres. So if you take your index finger and your long finger and you throw them over your head, it's those two strips right there. And there's part of the frontal lobe is involved, the parietal lobe is involved, the cerebellum is involved, it's huge chunks of brain. And in fact, it goes further than that. So if you think about something like writing, writing involves movement, of course, and it always has. But even before you pick up a paper and a pencil, you actually pointed this out in the bilateral podcast where you think of writing as unilateral, but it's really bilateral because the non-dominant limb is shifting the paper around. But even before you get to that part, you're taking letters that you've moved around in your head and you're moving them around to create words that you're then moving around to create paragraphs and so on and so forth. It's all about movement. Most of the stuff that we do, I mean, we're unique among animals, I think, in the ability to pre-plan movement and then execute the movement. So if you take a band of chimpanzees, you stick them in a Home Depot, and uh, I don't know if you've looked at, at the Podbean, our website, Podbean, and it tells you where people are listening around the globe. If you look at the stats portion of it, and there's people from around the world, you know, there's a few in the Philippines and France and, and the foreign, very foreign country, Canada. Ooh, uh, that's super the, exciting. Yeah, that's like way out there. Um, so, yeah, so uh, Home Depot is, is a hardware store here in the States. It's just this ginormous place, and it sells everything from doors to plumbing to lumber to everything, tools, whatever it is that you need. If you take a band of chimpanzees and you turn down the temperature in the Home Depot and you just throw them in the Home Depot and they got to make themselves warm, you give them plenty of food. You come back a week later, there'll be monkey poop all over the place and everything will be pulled off the, the, the huge racks and, and strewn on the floor and they'll find a way to make themselves warm, but it won't be very elegant. Whereas humans can walk up and down the aisles and say, I can attach that to that. This is the essence of architecture, right? You, before you build something, you put it together in your head. And so everything else, I would argue, is built on the cognitive template of motor learning. And in fact, it's called motor cognition. There's a whole portion of cognition that's dedicated to movement. I think what upsets people is that if you say that movement is cognitive, people go, well, that's impossible because dumb jocks do it. And it pisses people off because dumb jocks can't be smarter than them. They went to college, you know, they got PhDs or whatever they have. And then here you have, you know, somebody that got out of high school, went right into major league baseball or soccer, whatever it was. But the thing is that they have a very developed motor and sensory cortex, as well as other sundry parts of the brain that control movement. And so they really are quite brilliant. It's just in a way that we don't really value until we pay them a million dollars a year. And then we complain that they make a million dollars a year. So if you were that smart and I was that smart, we'd be making that kind of money too. So that's sort of my introduction to motor learning that it is very much cognitive and it's going to follow all the same rules that we've talked about in all the podcasts, uh, repetitive, challenging, meaningful, all that stuff comes into play. And uh, yeah, so bringing a little bit of my CEU class into this discussion. Okay. Well, that was great. Thank you, Pete. Good talk. Sure. Sure. <laughs> wake up. Wake up, Deb. 
He's falling asleep. (laughs) Actually, I'm not. And you're bringing me back to when I was an occupational therapy assistant fieldwork student. And I still remember we had a stroke survivor. It's one of my first clients that I worked with. I had such a hard time wrapping my head around motor planning. And finally, one day I just said, this is motor, but this person has to be thinking, like, is there a cognitive piece to this? And I, I just never fully understood it when I was a student. And I think what you just said helps, helps to clarify that. And I, I think that the cognitive piece occurs very subtly because we don't say out loud what we're doing. We don't walk around all day. We would be exhausted. It's just not part of what we do. It's very, it's implicit. It's right. Am I correct? It's that implicit piece of learning. You mean movement is implicit? The cognitive aspect of movement. It's how can um, it not be? I mean, a kid, an infant, right? He gets up. This is how they learn how to walk. I know you have kids. I have kids. My son started walking when he was nine months old, and he was running by the time that most kids were walking, about a year old. My daughter started like that first year. It was like it was like right on her birthday, she started walking. And it was a problem with my, my son because he had that big, fat baby head. And so, his center of gravity was real high and he, because he would constantly hit his head. It, it wasn't good news. But if you think about it, the way that a kid learns how to walk, they get up, they fall down, they get up, they fall down, they get up, they creep along, they fall down, they get up, they fall down. And, you know, it's kind of really sucked to be the child of a physical therapist. I mean, you know, the PT is sitting there going, look at that kid with the externally rotated hips and the high base of support. Give him a couple of AFOs and, and some orthotics on his feet and give him a rolling walker. That kid will be fine. And yet somehow they learn how, <laughs> somehow they learn how to, to walk and they do this through what did you call, just call it? You you asked if it was inherent? implicit, the implicit, implicit learning. Yeah. I think that's probably pretty implicit, and it goes down to something that's a biological imperative. I wonder if you got a kid and you had him raised by wolves, would he walk on all fours? I would suspect he wouldn't. He would find it a lot more effective. It might take him a little bit longer because he doesn't have that action observation, that ability to look at other humans walking on two feet, but I don't think he'd do all fours. Eventually, he'd get up. I I know it worked with Tarzan, and that's about my ability for anthropology. So, I'm going to have to defer to you on that one. Do you think if you were raised by wolves, you'd just go ahead and walk bipedally? Eventually, yes, I do. I know you keep thinking thinking that I have this uh, physical anthropology background when I took one class of that. And the rest uh-huh. of it's cultural. Cultural stuff. But still, yeah. you, you know more than the average mm-hmm. bear. So, yeah, I do yeah. think it's uh, implicit. And it's part, of, it's part of what we do to explore this world around us. Okay. So, this is from continuing education courses. Is, can I just ask, is that um, specifically about motor learning? Or was that more about a specific intervention, constraint-induced therapy, or both because i'm not trained in this stuff i don't know where one begins and that and the other ends yeah so do you want to bring in some of the stuff that you read about motor learning because i have some stuff that i read as well and it all ends up 
being exactly what you're talking about. It all ends up being constraint-induced. It all ends up being the same things that we've been talking about with regard to people with brain injury and how they learn. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there is a little bit of a dichotomy here, though. Is it learning or is it relearning? So, does it use the same part of the brain and that same part of the brain just needs to be infused with more neuronal connections or is it real learning? Do they have to use a completely disparate wrong part of the brain to do the movement in a new and different way? And so one really is motor learning. The other is more recovery, motor recovery. And I would say maybe we should discuss that a little bit, but is there anything that you learned from your reading that you want to bring into this? Sure. From motor learning theory to practice, and this is a review article where they looked at all these different conceptual frameworks for applying knowledge in motor learning to PT practice. And it seems like it's been established that motor learning principles are essential for stroke and brain injury recovery, but a lot of clinicians aren't using them. So that's why I liked the article because I, I feel like we're at, a, we're at a time in rehab where it's time to start implementing some of these strategies, which is why I like this podcast. And hopefully people will become feel a little bit more confident in knowing how to do that. And that article mentioned that they think that maybe one of the reasons that people aren't using it in the clinic is because motor learning is complex. It's difficult to understand. And there's not consistent terminology. And so it's being taught differently to different people. And they're not quite sure what to do with it when they learn this. And then the other article that I really liked talks about the learning stages for motor sequencing, motor recovery. So my question is, maybe it's learning a motor act, but cognitively people, if they remember that they knew this before, is that piece relearning? Maybe that's the part that drives learning in a new part of the brain. Yeah, you're right. They may not be separable. You, They may be conjoined. I know that there's this concept of the motor engram or the motor schema, this memory of the movement prior to your brain injury. And you can always ask people that have had a brain injury, in your dreams, are you, uh, are you hemiparetic? Do you, have, do you move weird? Are you ataxic? Do you have an AFO on? Are you using a walker? You know, do you fall a lot? And they'll say, no, in my dreams, I'm running and I'm riding bicycles and I'm swimming and I'm doing all the things I did do before and I'm doing them pretty well. It's not until they wake up and they realize, oh no, I'm trapped in this body that doesn't quite work as well as it did. But those memories are in there. And I think you've hit on a a great point. I'm not sure that this is in the research, maybe it is, but does the memory of the movement then impact the way, not that you relearn it because that would be using the same set of neurons, but does it impact the way you learn it anew? So does your memory impact the way you learn it this new way using a different part of the brain? I think that's probably a pretty important concept. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we want the template of their previous good movement to inform their hopefully new good movement. And sometimes that's accomplished and sometimes it's not. Most people don't recover fully. So that's sort of why we're in in this business. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of something that Kathy Spencer had said in our conversation with her, where she talked about 
doing a lot of visualization and mental practice. And in the first article I mentioned, they say that mental practice is mentioned about 50% of the time in their literature review. So there were two terms in that article that consistently showed up in the literature for motor learning, and that was task-specific training, and then mental practice needs to be a part of that. Yeah, and those are things that we've talked about, and I think we're going to end up talking about more. Mm -hmm. So, task-specific was one, Mm -hmm. and that means if you're going to try to relearn how to walk, you should walk. (laughs) The best way to learn how to walk you know, there's actually research that says that that's true. It seems completely intuitive, but it's important that if you're going to try to relearn how to upper body dress, that you upper body dress and you practice mm-hmm. that. And then the other one was mental practice. Yes. And mental practice is something that we all do in anticipation of any event. And uh, we're trying to imagine how it would feel to, to do the movement. Mm-hmm. And it is quite compelling. Um, I think we mentioned before on this podcast, the three big ones, there's movement, and you, you know, relearn movement or you learn movement through repetitive practice, that lights up a portion of the brain and the muscles involved in that movement fire, obviously. Mental practice, the, that portion, the same portion of the brain lights up and the muscles also fire minutely in the same order and for the same duration as if you actually do it. And then finally, action observation where you observe somebody else doing it and the same portion of the brain lights up pretty much. And maybe I'll put this, there's some great visuals of this, of the fMRI comparatively in the show notes. But if you observe somebody doing it, that portion of your brain will light up. This is something that involves mirror neurons. These neurons allow us to be empathetic with each other and the muscles fire for the same duration in the same order as if we actually do it or if we mentally practice it. So it gives you a a few different ways to practice. The whole mental practice thing is really a, a good way to focus your thoughts a little bit. We're always, I think we're always thinking, I don't know about you, but I catch myself thinking all kinds of weird stuff throughout the day. And uh, especially when I'm trying to meditate, man, that's when it really becomes apparent. But if we, if we spend a portion of our day focusing on the movement that we want to make, then that's reminding the brain that it knows how to do it and firing those neurons. And it's also incorporating cognition, Yeah, absolutely. Changing the structure and or function of neurons. Of course, the problem becomes, what if you've had a brain injury and you're just relearning something that you used to do perfectly well? Isn't that kind of boring as compared to learning a new chord on guitar or learning a new technique skiing downhill or whatever it is? It's part of the motivational thing and it's it's tough. Well, there are a lot of components involved. And I do think that meaning and motivation is important, which is what we're supposed to be doing in occupational therapy, bringing meaning into things. And now we're back to task specificity. So I would like to review a couple of things that I read in the literature and tried to simplify. So some of the motor learning principles that maybe a clinician can bring in, but maybe a a stroke survivor or a person who has a brain injury um, or a caregiver or a nurse or anybody can bring into play. So the first is the principle of interest. One of my favorite neuroscientists is Michael Mersenich. He's the guy who developed the cochlear implant, and he did a lot with the early measuring neuroplastic change. Did it in animals, I think, first. I noticed that I had an email from him. I I had emailed him a while ago saying that I was going to write this into one of the editions of my book, and and did I get it right? And, And the way I quoted him 
was if it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. That's the rule. And and he said, uh, yeah, that that's about right. But he said, if it's not important to you, it won't be important for your brain and no positive change will occur. So maybe the trick for a caregiver or a survivor or an OT is being able to motivate them by bringing in stuff that they really enjoy doing. So that's called the principle of interest, right? Um, Can I tell a story? Oh, yes, please. So um, this is when I was working in the critical care units. We had a man who had a stroke. I don't know what kind of a stroke he had, but he just was sleeping pretty much comatose weekend after weekend. And I only worked weekends at this time. So we would sit him up, but we wouldn't really get any active response from him. And then one day we noticed someone had brought in a picture of him conducting an orchestra. So I said, let's listen to some music. What song do you want to listen to? What's your favorite song? No response. So of course I said, we'll listen to my favorite song. So when we started playing the music, he was sitting at the edge of the bed. His eyes weren't open, but his foot was tapping. And so, you know, moral of the story is he couldn't talk to us. And we knew that. We found the thing. And and sometimes you have to use the clues in your surroundings, but he ended up having a normal recovery. He's back to work, but really, yes. And he was a conductor. He was a conductor, local. Yeah, but still, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't tell me you're gonna you put a baton in his hand. Hey, go get a chopstick <laughs> on the mess plate. Go get a chopstick from over there and bring it to this guy. When he da na 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 bilateral training. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely go after stuff that they're interested in. I mean, look, if what lubricates this whole machine, this brain, is uh, is meaningful, and I want to go into that more. But let me uh, just talk about the principle of practice. And in fact, in the next podcast, we're going to talk about repetitive practice, how many repetitions should be done, all that kind of stuff. And we're going to flesh that out with the latest research that I actually have read. So that'll be fun. Um, there's the principle of distributed practice. That's where you do short bouts and you do them here and there, wherever you want to. And then the principle of mass practice, where you're doing a lot of chunking of practice, the principle of uh, skill specificity. So this is a thing where, again, if you're going to learn how to walk, you should be walking. If you're going to learn how to upper body dress, you should work on upper body dressing, that it's specific to that skill. And that's the best way to learn it. I'm going to say something that's going to, so if it's, if this is sexist, I want you to call me on it. Okay. 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 So here we go. I'm ready. Stupid male going to say something stupid. Okay. So I think that the most difficult sport to do is gymnastics. Why? It's what we call the the biggest range of motion in the most pivots, right? Most joints through their most range of motion. You got to be fast because a lot of the tumbling stuff involves speed and you have to be able to do move in so many different, the flexibility is incredible. It's just, you would think that they would have huge motor and sensory cortices, that their brain would be on fire with the ability to move. And you know, the first pitch in like uh, an MLB game, they'll get some famous old guy from the MLB or they'll get some politician or somebody. And there's this great video of gymnasts, um, very famous, world-class gold medal winners in the Olympics throwing out the first pitch. 
and they always throw like a girl. All the girls throw like a girl. Like I tried to teach this to my daughter, and it's very difficult to do, that when you go to throw something, you turn yourself sideways to the target because the power comes through your trunk. And girls often try to face the target and just use the shoulder strength, and it just doesn't work that well. And um, and it was it was interesting. I mean, Serena Williams, who obviously is dealing with tennis balls all the time and chucks them across the thing, she did great. But the gymnasts were just absolutely terrible at throwing. So it's got to be specific to the skill that you're trying to learn. It's an important concept. So now we're still we're starting to build this three-dimensional perspective. It should be stuff that you love to do or that's really important to you for whatever reason, maybe getting back to work, you know, walking, everybody wants to walk. And then once you have that thing that you really want to relearn, you should work on that thing. That's task specificity. Then there's this idea of part-whole practice, where you take the entire whatever it is, you break it down to component parts and practice that. I'm going to talk about that in a second. And then this idea that you sometimes, although I just talked about task specificity, there's also this principle of transfer, that if you are a good gymnast, it may not be that hard to teach you how to throw because you already have these other skills that overlap with throwing. Wow. So when we're talking about distributed practice and mass practice and skill specificity and transferring skills and all of this language, it's making me wonder and think about something we were talking about before we started recording this podcast Is an hour or an hour and a half of therapy for PT and an hour and a half of OT or an hour of each, including speech, enough in a day? I think no. Yeah. Do you think the people who came up with rug levels and all the dosages for rehab read this stuff? Probably not. I don't think so. I don't think so either. So, research. I just want to throw this in here that. I think, and, and I understand this is where clinical reasoning comes into play. You have to know your, your client's level of ability and function and all of that. But when you have a motivated person that you're working with, I think it's really important to set them up with some activities to do during their downtime with you and then start talking to them about what they're going to do when they're discharged to kind of prime that. Uh, home exercise program or the home program, whatever you want to call it. Maybe take the word exercise out if somebody doesn't like exercise, but helping people to understand that they need to do more. Because if we go back and listen to Kathy's interview with us, she she worked on her, her movement for hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. ATP, um, which is the, what is that? The letters, the acronym, the acronym for home exercise program doesn't stand for hand them photocopies. So no. as they're walking out the door, you should hand them photocopies. And then that's, that's the responsibility of the therapist. And what's weird about the ATP or the home exercise program is it's exactly the same exercises that they did with the therapist. So built into it is a plateau because yes. they're not going to do any new exercises. Therapists don't want to give them any new exercise because if they do and they go home and they get hurt, the therapist can be liable. But this kind of speaks to coming back. And I think, I'm not sure if Kathy talked about this, but this idea of having um, 
just another session or two with the therapist so that they can say, okay, you're here, you've bumped up to here, now we need to get you to bump up to there, let's set up a program so that you can hit the new plateau. Because that's what recovery is during the chronic phase. It's a series of plateaus, just like an athlete or a musician would chip away at their present abilities. Yes. And if you work on that, creating that with the client, then you're not doing it for them. They're helping you build this program and you're just giving them a little bit of structure, a little bit of encouragement and education on the importance of constantly increasing that challenge. Yeah. Because not everybody does understand and some people do have cognitive deficits following a stroke. And so, whether it's educating the survivor or the caregiver or others who are going to be helping them when they're discharged. So, one of the things I would ask you, because I've written about this and I've there's talked about it a lot, this idea of when they are discharged to home and a lot of people who have brain injury that may be listening to this, they're at home and they're chronic and it's been eight months to 10 years after the event. They're still trying to get better. Um, what kind of stuff do you think that I, I, I hesitate to use the term home gym, but what kind of tools do you think that they should have at home? You know, and of course, I'm bouncing back to Kathy Spencer and her bolts and her marbles, sorry, her nuts and her marbles and her mirrors and all that stuff. But maybe that's, maybe that's part of it. As you set this up at home and things change over time, you need, need different kinds of things. But are, are there any kind of go-to things as you're writing your home exercise program that you think that would be essential to somebody trying to recover upper extremity function after a brain injury? Oh, boy. That's a big question. For the person who doesn't have movement, I would recommend a mirror therapy program. And you can do mirror therapy with a cheap mirror that you buy at Walmart as long as you can set it up in that perpendicular position and do ex- do exercises and activities that look like the other hand is moving. Just simple things like that. And get I say get creative because if people make a game out of things, it becomes more fun to do. And I know Kathy had mentioned people getting bored. It, it can be boring to try to get better. Exer- I find exercise boring personally, um, but it's not for entertainment, but you can make a game out of it. You can make it entertaining. So I think that's one thing. If you have, if you have movement then there are a plethora of, of things, activities you can do around the house. You can take silverware out of a drawer and put it back. You can take the glasses out of the cupboard and put them back, providing you have sufficient grip strength. Clean a cupboard, wipe things down, clean out your closets, get yourself dressed every day, sit to stand. Uh, um, all of those things within safety parameters that you're able to do. Yeah, Absolutely. I think, um, so I play drums like your son does. And, uh, and there was one of the few terms I remember from back in school was called a dysdiadokinesia. And it was, I love that word. Yeah, you I know love that is? word. Yeah, I do. Rapidly d- alternating movements. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alternating movements, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the bilateral training thing. Mm-hmm. And I always thought like, here's, here's the thing, Deb, if I have a stroke 
or if I have a brain injury and and my arms aren't working that well, can you please put a drum set in front of me? I mean, I can be completely aphasic. I could be completely aphasic, receptively, uh, not understanding what you're saying. I could be uh, expressively aphasic. I could be a blow. You put drumsticks in my hand. I'm going to know what you're talking about. And uh, and so, yeah, so now we're back to task specificity. We're talking about the principle of interest, right? Do stuff that's meaningful to people. And so maybe maybe then I'm asking the wrong question because I thought you were going to say something uh. like barbells and TheraBand and all the typical rehab stuff. I'm an occupational may- therapist. Yeah. So you're you really are into this. In, uh, you're very interested in in facilitating meaningful yes. in their recovery. Mm-hmm. And I do like the bilateral training concept. And I think if somebody doesn't understand it, like get your book and people can learn about it in your book. But if they don't have your book and and they're not sure about it, they could speak to the, a therapist about it, a PT or an OT or both, and come up with some activities that they can do related to things that they want to do in their everyday life. Yeah. I wonder if... so. With the person that you were talking about before where he was a conductor, I wonder if therapists pick that scab enough. I mean, I have stories like that, too. The woman who... um, So, Cincinnati, where I live, is right next to Northern Kentucky. And once you get deeper into Kentucky, it's all about bluegrass. I mean, they love their music. They love it. And so, I had this conversation with this woman who had dementia. It was in a skilled nursing facility. and, And... she wasn't walking with anybody. And I, I had to go and I had to see her. And I was like, okay, she didn't want to walk. Maybe she'll talk to me. So we started talking about stuff and she had significant dementia. But what I did get from her was that she was from Kentucky. So I immediately went to music and I said, oh, I, you know, do, do you like bluegrass? And she goes, yeah, I, I like a lot. And uh, I said, do you play a musical instrument? And she said, yeah. And I said, what do you play? And she said, piano. And I go, you got to be kidding me. There's a piano sitting out there in the main uh, uh, main area. We got to go out there. And I just started to talk to her like a musician, from a musician to a musician. And I'm already getting chills up my spine talking about this. So anyway, so she wouldn't walk. I brought the wheelchair to about uh, 10 yards from the piano bench. And I said, do me a favor. Just walk to the piano bench and sit down. There, that's all you got to do. And you know how the story went. She sat at the piano bench. She walked there, first of all. She sat down. She got herself ready. She got to put her hands on the keys. And there was kind of like this, looking at me, laughing. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And she started playing. All I can tell you is it was part ragtime, but it was, it was also part um, bluegrass. It was wow. like, it was some sort of weird amalgam of ragtime and bluegrass. This woman was, and I was like, who wrote that? You know, is that Scott Jolly? Who is that? And she goes, I wrote that. And oh. so, but those kinds of things, you've got to pick that scab. And I think sometimes, I don't know, let's not dump on therapists, but no, but pick yeah. that scab a little bit. Yeah. Sit down and talk to them. You can bill it as patient education. If you're a caregiver, talk to the person, the survivor, and say, you know, what are you really interested in recovering? Or what's driving you nuts that you don't have? And it could be something like walking, but it could be something like, you know, playing drums. Who knows what it is? Yeah. it's Sometimes it's the way the questions are asked. And you just gave two very different ways of asking a question. Oh, that's the thing I wanted to bring up is uh, depression. When people are depressed, oftentimes they don't have that motivation in them 
And depression is missed sometimes. So it's either underdiagnosed or missed. And asking someone if they're depressed is not the way to find out if they're depressed. Using a depression assessment tool is a better way to find out if they are. And then addressing that, however that needs to be addressed, can maybe help somebody find some motivation inside of them. Mm. So you're saying that depression will hurt recovery? Yes, I'm saying that. Well, good, because I think you're right. And you know, the irony, of course, is if you could get them to work out or do something physical, physical activity is as effective for mild to moderate depression as Prozac or Praxel is. So it all kind of comes full circle. It's also important for learning. What is exercise? Activity, exercise. Yeah, Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. I mean, as soon as you said that, I thought of this great protein that's secreted by the brain into the brain, brain brain-derived neurotropic factor that comes out when you exercise that then supports motor learning because it supports all learning. But maybe what you're talking about is activity is often social and that's going to invigorate the brain as well. Well, I'm going to admit that's not what I was thinking of, but- What were you thinking? (laughs) I was thinking of the neurotransmitter, but the social aspect is very important. And oftentimes people get caught up doing their therapy activity while talking with other people and forgetting their problems for a little while. So one of the things that really helps people recover, believe it or not, globally, is an enriched environment. And therapists, caregivers can really help with that a lot. Social interaction is an enrichment of environment. Movement is considered an enrichment of environment. So there's a lot that that we can do to set people up to just be more engaged. And this comes full circle to what you were talking about, which is that depressed people don't recover very well. Yeah. So I want to talk about three brain rules that I think are really important. And the third one we're going to talk about in the next podcast, uh, Repetitive Practice. But I want to talk about two other ones. First of all, whatever people with brain injury do to learn, whatever anybody does to learn, it's got to be a challenge. You have to force the brain, force the brain into a new and uncomfortable but productive area. Because, you know, as a musician, I can tell you this happens a lot. A guitar player will sit down and they'll play guitar and they'll really play the same thing that they played a hundred other times. They're not really challenging themselves. And so you're not going to get any better. Practice should always be on the edge of your ability. The challenge should always be there. For therapists, if you want a technical way of looking at it, you're chipping away at their present active ranges of motion. That is, if they're not functional yet, at least get more active range of motion, and that's easily measurable, so that's important. But the problem is that people, I think, inherently know that the brain is neuroplastic. They've seen it in themselves, and sometimes they'll challenge themselves in a way that makes their life worse. You know, it doesn't happen often, but, you know, addictions and, and all kinds of mental problems that you have um, from OCD to, what, are you, you're showing me the coffee? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the, is that your addiction? Yes. I think it's really good for the brain. This is my justification. I, I do coffee. too. Yeah. I think that's pretty well established in the clinical research uh, confirms that our addictions are good. Everybody else's though, they're not so good. No, but I do think there is some yeah. benefit. You talked about depression. I mean, coffee drinkers are less depressed. I think that's one of the things. People are reluctant to change in the in a big way, but 
you know, sometimes we change into something we don't like, but it's still worthwhile to always challenge yourself no matter what you're trying to do. If you decrease the challenge, you decrease the recovery. And don't be afraid of making mistakes as you're trying to motor learn because the actual learning comes from, from the correction of the mistakes. I think what therapists sometimes fall into this thing where they tell people, well, you're doing it wrong and let me hold down your shoulder and this is not right and don't forget this and, and it's a million different things. Just let them do it. Let them make mistakes. If you're unclear whether they're cognitively intact enough to understand that they're doing it wrong, put a mirror that they're facing, not mirror therapy, but where they're facing the mirror, have them do it with the less affected limb or the better limb, and then have them do a bad one so that they can have you know a sort of symmetrical view of what's going on. We call it a productive struggle. You're always trying to push them just a little bit further than they can do. Now, of course, we always have to have the sense that people need to stay safe. And when you're going outside your ability, that's a tough thing to do. We had talked about gait speed as something that you can measure. How fast do you walk? One of the things that works to increase gait speed and an increase in gait speed is an increase in longevity. It's a decrease in falls. It's a decrease of fear of falling. It's a whole bunch of good things. But one of the things that they use is called speed-dependent treadmill training, where they get them in a harness. And you have to have a harness to do this because if you're going to increase the speed of the treadmill, they have an opportunity to fall and you don't want that. So they put them in this harness that hangs over the treadmill. It looks like kind of like what a parachutist would wear. It goes, you know, it holds their entire pelvis up. So if they were to fall, they don't fall. They just kind of sit in the harness. Okay. And what they do is they get their top speed. They go, okay, Mr. Smith, walk as fast as you can. They get the sense of what the top speed is. Let's say, you know, 1.3 miles an hour. Then they say, okay, we're going to have you for the next minute do that 1.3 miles per hour. And then they up at 10%, whatever that is. And if the person can do it, they up at another 10%. And if they can't do it, they come back down 10%. But if they can do that, they go up at 10%. So you're always trying to increase their speed. That's a good example of challenge where you're always trying to do something more than you're actually able to do. This is the way we all grow. This is the way we all learn. In something like constraint-induced therapy, you're trying to add another element to it. Okay, you're able to put the cup up on that shelf. What about this shelf? And you go higher. Or can you do that, whatever the activity is, faster? You know what? We're going to stick a stopwatch on you. You know what? We are very interested in treating you like a low-level athlete playing a higher-stakes game. So we're going to treat you like an athlete. And we're just going to try to go at everything that we can the same way a coach would. So the therapist has shifted from being maybe a therapist and a little bit more of a coach. I love what you're saying. And I think these are great ideas. And I hope that some clinicians will benefit from this and and, uh, increase their creativity in the clinic. I know it's easy to get stuck in a rut in the clinic, or sometimes you're just not sure what to do. But I remember in one of our beginning episodes, I I think it was the episode where we were talking about measuring change, where you talked about when people plateau, mixing up what they're doing. So maybe they are still moving cups to the same height shelf, but then they're trying to see if they can do it faster. Yeah. Time and the Mm -hmm. the number that they can do and then adding weight to the cup, you know, kinds of stuff that you can do kind of turn them into athletes. Absolutely. Yes. I love it. And you know what else I was thinking when, just because we were just talking about depression, when we challenge ourselves, whether we achieve that challenge or not, there is a level of intrinsic motivation that comes from just knowing that you tried it. 
And that to me is a success. And I think that if we're providing the just right challenge for people and they're seeing gains and we're not really critiquing too much about how they move and letting them move, that maybe that can help deflect some of that depression and increase motivation. Hmm. So yeah, so let them let them give them the courage to fail. Yeah. Because failure isn't a constant. It, you fail and then you get better. I mean, the kid stands up and he falls down and he stands up and he falls down. He doesn't give up. It's just a new day and you, you try yeah. new things. Yeah. So there's another really important concept that comes straight out of neuroscience. What's that? And th- and that's something called salience. Do you happen to know what that word means? Because I had to look it up. It's Oh, gosh. I thought it had to do with saline. It doesn't. So I often don't. therapists, because I, I do these talks and I'll go, does anybody here know what salience means? And if therapists do know what it means, they'll talk about it's important to the patient. And so this gets back to that original principle, the principle mm-hmm. of interest. So let's just talk about meaningful and the importance of working on stuff that's that's meaningful. So if we create this arc of not very meaningful at all to very, very meaningful, we could look at something like algebra. Let me ask you this, Deb. When's the last time you did an algebraic equation? Well, let me well, ask you Well, when this. I was going to anthropology school. Yeah. Yeah. It was back in school. Yeah. I mean, and they start torturing kids at, in fifth grade with algebra. You haven't done algebra in years. How mm. necessary is it? I mean, I don't get it. Uh, there's other things that we can teach kids that involve math, things like music, yeah. Um, baking. All kinds. What's that? Baking. Baking. Absolutely. I mean, that's real world. I had to deal with that today. I was making a some sort of a, a smoothie. Let's call it a smoothie. Um, and yeah, and so baking involves a lot of stuff. There's all kinds of cool kinds of math that you can undertake. I took one in, in college. It was the math that shows up in nature. So like oh. the the veins in a leaf, that's a mathematical calculation. The famous one is the Fibonacci calculation. You remember that one? Yes. It was for like a shell. You know how shells are perfect spirals? Well, how do they do that? You know, it has to do with patterns. And there's patterns everywhere. Humans are obsessed by patterns. So yeah. So algebra, yeah, that's not very salient to most of us. So let's weigh down here. So what's higher on this arc of salience? Well, what's the last thing you touch at night and the first thing you touch in the morning, depending on the, your relationship with your significant other or whatever, but it's the cell phone, right? And you know it's important because when you think you lost your cell phone, you do that crazy cell phone dance like, where's my cell phone? I cannot find my cell phone. Who's seen my cell phone? It's it's like part of us. We're, I don't think we're going to be happy until we're accepting Elon Musk into our lives and, and it's just that brain port that he wants to put right into our brain. So oh, cell phone, that's, that's really quite very salient, right? Mm-hmm. The most salient thing for most people in a, in a typical life, obviously you can have things like post-traumatic stress disorder, people that have been to war, people that climb Mount Everest. For most of us, it's having and raising children. Mm-hmm. There's more neuroplastic change driven by having and raising children just about anything that we do. You know, right out of the box, so to speak, you better learn how to change a poopy diaper. Because yeah. if you can't change a poopy diaper, Oh, your kid's screwed. Yeah. They're back in the hospital and you're a bad parent. Yeah. And then you got to relearn algebra to teach them algebra because they're being tortured by algebra. And, you know, you'd rather be at the dentist than teaching algebra, right? I mean, hey, doc, I got another one back here. It's in the molar. (laughs) Just drill. The kid wants to learn algebra. I don't want to have to do 
So, so we, we have this arc of salience, right? We have algebra, we have cell phones, and we have children. It's, it's very clear that the things that we focus on are the things that we retain. I mean, there's so many skills and redundancies that you have to learn as a parent that it ended, ends up driving more neuroplastic change than just about anything else you can do in your life. So, how do we treat people that we're, you know, as clinicians, how do we treat people? Let me see if I can get a knocking noise. Hi, Mr. Smith. My name's Pete. I'm your OT. And today we're going to work on toileting. I need to get you from mint to mon and toileting so we can hold you over for rug levels as they increase. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you said to yourself, man, I used to be such a great toileter. Back in my 20s, I was in, I was out. Everything was very clean. Now there's all this paperwork. You know, half the time I leave the bathroom and then I go, maybe I should stick around for a while because I'm not sure I'm done. I need an OT to help me with my toileting. Then right? Right? Yeah. Right? Oh, work. my God. So, what is, what is salient about toileting? I mean, is it the mechanical act of getting the toilet paper off of whatever? What, it, what makes it really meaningful, do you think? Well, just a guess here, but relief. Relief. That's a good one. <laughs> no, out of all the talks I did, I didn't actually hear relief, but that's a good one. That is a really good one. Um, relief. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reduction in pain. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what a lot of therapists zone in on is this idea of independence that nobody wants somebody in the bathroom with them when they're going to the bathroom. And so, as a clinician, but also as a caregiver, also as a person who's had a brain injury, you can punch into that part of the brain. And I did a little research. It's called the pregenual anterior cingulate. And it was discovered by this guy. I'm not making this up. His name is George Bush. He's an MD and he worked at Harvard, professor of psychiatry forever. And he wanted to figure out what part of the brain is responsible for embarrassment. And it was this pregenual anterior cingulate. It's, uh, you, you know, the corpus callosum, the part of the brain that holds the two hemispheres together. It's kind of a half moon right in the middle of the brain. It kind of surrounds that. Oh. And, um, and so, you can say, hey, Mr. Smith, or hey, dad, or whatever it is, you know, I bet you have nightmares about this. It's you, the toilet, the toilet paper, and just a bunch of people in the background just watching you do your business. I mean, even as hunter-gatherers, we went someplace else. We were embarrassed by that thing. We went someplace, it smells, it's ugly, you know, nobody wants to see that stuff. Not true in all cultures. Really? Yeah. Okay, cultural anthropologist. Oh, boy. The Samai. They go to the bathroom together. They walk down to the creek together. They go to the bathroom together. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That and, and drunk guys at a bar. They stand next to each other. They pee. Mm-hmm. It's a big trough. They don't care. They're drunk. So where I, have a, I have a fun bathroom story about a bar, but that's for another time. <laughs> as long as you can work it into brain injury recovery, we're happy to hear your stories. <laughs> well, it was a bunch of therapists, but. <laughs> really? So where are the semi from? Malay Peninsula in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. All right. You put me on the spot there. No, well, you put me on the spot. I thought I was safe I with saying the toileting was really embarrassing, but apparently to the Samai in <laughs> Southeast Asia, it's just a, it's a party. I don't know. Let's that's what Bob said. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but anyway, for yeah. for a lot of people in our culture, it's just a big deal, and you don't want to be there in the, in the bathroom when your father's there, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want you there. So, punch into the pregenual anterior cingulate that George Bush came up with, and say, "Hey, look, I don't want to be here. You don't want me here. You don't want your wife here. You know, you don't want some caregiver you don't even know." And that will start to into the brain this concept of salience. What's really meaningful? But it's couched within the context of independence. So it's a really important concept. It is important. So we have challenging, we have meaningful, we have all the principles. And I wanted to talk about one other thing that had to do with motor learning. I'm a chatty Kathy today. Okay, so it's part whole practice. And I think we've talked about this, right? You take the entire ADL and ADL stands for uh, activities of daily living. And you taught me a new one, IADL, which mm-hmm. what was the I again? I forgot. Instrumental. Instrumental. That's right. And that's yeah. what we're talking about. That's salience, right? Mm-hmm. Like really important stuff. Well, higher level cognitive. And a lot of it is really important. You know, being able to prepare a meal for yourself or your family. That's pretty important. It is. Most people get hungry. Yeah. I know I do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, among the um, Yanomamu in South America, they don't eat at all. Bet you didn't know that. It's a joke. Really? It's a bad joke. It's my anthropology joke. You talk <laughs> about people that don't get embarrassed when they go to the bathroom. But so now I'm talking about people who never ate. It was Buddha. It was Siddhartha who never ate. Anyway, so I want to talk about part whole practice. So it's simple enough. You take the entire task, whatever it is, you break it down to its component parts. You practice the component parts, and then you put it together for the entire task. And then those component parts, you bring it right down to the level of the ability of the person doing it. So it doesn't matter how little they can move. You can always do a little bit of those component parts. I'm going to quiz you, okay? So well, I do this. Yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead. What did you want to do? No, go ahead. Quiz. My daughter hates when I quiz her, <laughs> unless it's for the GRE, which she's studying for now. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, she wants me to quiz her. Okay. So feeding with a spoon. Okay. So what are the component parts of feeding with a spoon? And what I, if, if you can, if you, if you feel like this, usually I get 35 people to do it and they all work as a team. I'm yeah. doing it to you and I, it's going to be really hard. It, it may be hard, but you may be really good at this. Some people are good at this. So my hands are on my lap and here's my spoon. What would be the component parts of feeding? And if you could, you like, don't say lift your arm, but give me like elbow flexion, external rotation, whatever it is that you think I should do. And then I'm going to need a robot and I'll just do what you're saying. Okay. So you're going to need a little shoulder flexion. Shoulder flexion. My hand is stuck under the desk. Well, could you please back up? Yeah. So that you want me to back away from the table? (laughs) I want to feed. Listen. I need to see how your hand moves, how your whole arm and hand move first. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, actually, I'm a really good robot. I'll do anything you tell me to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just need the component parts. So you, somehow you need to get your hand so that it's not going to be hitting the desk. So you might need a little shoulder extension and some elbow flexion. Shoulder extension and some elbow flexion. Good. Yeah. And now now, maybe a little shoulder flexion, maybe a little, a little bit. Um, You need, so where is the spoon located? Just on the table in front of you? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So it looked like your forearm was in neutral before, but 
Yeah. So you need a little pronation there in your forearm. Ooh, you're good at this. Keep going. <laughs> you may or may not. Well, so your wrist may or may not move, but you could still pick that spoon up if your wrist doesn't move. If you can extend your fingers. Finger and extension. Your thumb. Yep. And Maybe then, little, uh, what is this? Is this radial? No, this is ulnar you know, deviation. It kind of, I think it, I need to see. Just, yeah, that looks like a little ulnar deviation that you've got. A little going ulnar on there. deviation. Yeah. I okay, think it depends on, yeah, yeah. I'm and then you need to. Deb. Thanks, Pete. I did graduate OT school. You did. <laughs> I've seen whole classes just stick me under the table, basically, by completely robotting me in the wrong way. Mm. So that, that was pretty good. And yeah. that's what you do. You take the entire ADL and you little, literally write down every component part. So can I just say here, this is what we do in occupational therapy and occupational therapy school. We learn activity analysis or task analysis, and that is essentially what we do, which is why when I learned about constraint-induced therapy and I saw this, all the different parts of it, the shaping especially. I'm like, this is what we do in OT, grading activities. But yes, breaking a task down. But I think sometimes people just get overwhelmed when they hear these words like part whole practice and component parts and oh no. Right. I think that's what Eddie Taub would call them. You know, Eddie Taub. Ed, Ed Taub. Wow. He's gone yeah, from so Ed he, to Eddie. He kind of like developed, but a lot of this comes from Karin Shepard, who we've talked about before. It's yeah. this, the, the whole motor learning thing. Um, so let me talk about something else. Upper body dressing. I think you would agree to get your arm through a jacket involves, right? It's almost clearly a punching motion to get your arm through the sleeve, right? But let's say you're doing this part whole practice. How many times are you going to get them? And we're going to talk about repetitive practice on the next podcast, but how many repetitions are you going to get them to punch their way through a sleeve before they want to punch you from boredom? So one of the things that you can do is take their ability to punch wherever it is. And right now I'm showing this sort of highly hemiparetic, the, the hand is just scraping against the chest, but that's what I have. And that's what you work on. And you just have them punch and chip away at the present active ranges of motion until finally they get some semblance of being able to punch their way through the sleeve. What is the role of muscle fatigue in all of this? That's a great question. And look, things like constraint-induced therapy that use a lot of repetitions, mm -hmm. it's ugly. It's ugly because they haven't used those muscles. And it's ugly because they haven't used that part of the brain very much. And one of the truisms with regard to brain injury recovery is, and it took me a long time to figure this out, the stuff that works immediately doesn't work long-term. And the stuff that works long-term is ugly, sweaty, hard work, and it looks horrible in the short term. Can you talk so, a little bit more about that? So what's something that works immediately? Handling techniques. Tapping. Tapping a tendon, oh, getting a reflex okay. to do it. You know, well, I mean, so, at least I'm in there doing something, you know. Yeah, but it has no impact on the part of the central nervous system that actually matters, the brain. The only way to learn this stuff is through a lot of sweaty, ugly, hard work. And unfortunately, therapists see that sweaty, ugly, hard work and they go, that, that can't be good. Look, he's getting more spastic and he's getting fatigued. As you mentioned, he has delayed onset muscle soreness that he's complaining about from yesterday. Yeah. This is a disaster. Let's just kind of help him along. And, you know, but that's not. So let's talk about that. Can we talk about that for a minute? I know we're going for a long time, but this is 
Good stuff. So what do we do if somebody has the delayed onset muscle soreness? Do we say, I'm so sorry, we're doing this again today? Do we give them a break? Like, how do we, what is the right way to think about this? Right. So work on a different component part. There's always something that you can work on. Maybe you are fatiguing the elbow extensors and the pronators. Okay. Well, maybe you can work on shoulder flexion or something else. And this is where your ability to be a good coach comes in. But also, I think it's patient education. Hey, Mr. Smith, this is going to get ugly and it's going to hurt and it's going to be tough, but I'm here for you. And we're going to do this together. Come on, let's go. Come on, high five. You know, it's a lot of encouragement. Yeah. In constraint-induced therapy, there's always like a lot of like, yeah, you can do it. You're doing great. It's a coaching kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will help. Now, once well, I they- think it's important to be honest with people. And I think people appreciate that honesty because they know what to expect. And I'm going to say it took me a while to get there. I used to kind of sugarcoat stuff because I didn't want to, I just, I didn't want to offend people. But, you know, the day that a lady said to me, I feel like I have a tube coming out of my nose. And I said, but you do. <laughs> it just got so much easier. Yeah, I'm wondering when that happened to me. I wonder if that's having kids is helpful with that stuff because you got to you got to lay it down with them. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and but yeah, you're right. Students yeah. often won't go there. They're they're mm-hmm. overly po- polite, and I try to tell them get yeah. up in their face and say, "Look, you see those stairs over there? That's where we're headed towards. You can't yes. be discharging till you get up those stairs. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to work or not? You know, it's that kind of stuff. So sometimes yeah. you have those discussions. Yes. Now back to the component practice, if you don't mind, because I have one more thing I want to add, and then I'll, I'll I got to. Um, can I ask another question, though? Yeah, yeah. More clarification. So, you said that the tapping and those things don't work. So, when we're using vibration to get a muscle to move, that's not really effective. Or can we use that with a functional movement? So, let, let me, I'm not sure how to answer the vibration thing, because I don't know that okay. much about it. Okay. But I will say this, I've had a little bit of a change of mind. So it's, it's a difficult subject for me because I've spent a lot of years railing against a lot of the neurofacilitation stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the way the nervous system learns. That's not the way motor learning happens. That's not the way the brain changes. However, I have a professor that I work with who uses a lot of that stuff to get the person into the position in order to do a lot of the stuff that does work. So Okay, look, if you tap the, you want them to extend their knee, let me just give it a a simple one. You want them to extend their knee and you tap the patellar tendon, it's going to extend the knee. The thing is, that's a monosynaptic stretch reflex. It's not going to have any change in the brain. If you have them activate the knee extensors actively, that will change the brain. If they have it, do it repetitively, it'll change it a lot and they'll redevelop. But the problem is all the stuff we just talked about. It's ugly. They may not get very much. They're frustrated. There's delayed onset muscle soreness. There's just aggravation all around. Why not just tap the knee? I mean, I had this discussion with a therapist once. Um, you know, this guy was struggling to get his leg through in the parallel bars. And I'm, I'm thinking, let him struggle. That's what he's here for. Let him struggle. And she came by and she... Um, tap the patellar tendon and the knee came flying forward. And she goes, that's how you do it. I'm like, well, yeah, but that doesn't really teach him anything. What is, are we supposed to teach him to tap his patellar tendon for the rest of his life? That's a, that's a reflexive arc. It doesn't really help. And it doesn't change the brain, the organ we're trying to get after. Yes. I'm just, thank you. 
Oh, absolutely. But it, it happens a lot. In, you know, in a couple of weeks, I guess we're going to talk about spasticity and we're going to dedicate two podcasts to that. And there's a lot of stuff with spasticity that stuff that works now doesn't work in the future. Stuff that looks like it's making spasticity worse makes it better in the future. It's this grand dichotomy or this, mm-hmm. this head fake. And that's why clinical research is so important because we can look at things over long arcs of time and get a sense of really what does work. So back to um, this part-whole practice and you know when do you start to make it more difficult? So we talked about putting a cup up here. You know When do you add more weight to the cup or put it up? Once they can do that component part, 70 to 80% of the time, 70 to 80% of the time. And you're literally counting. You're looking for a, a C plus, B minus, 70 to 80%, seven to eight out of 10 that they can do. Now you got to make them do a harder task or add weight or make them do it more rapidly. Otherwise, they're just spinning their wheels and everybody feels real comfortable. Oh, you're doing that thing that you do really well. That's not what we, we need. We always are chipping away at their present abilities to make the brain challenged. So I have some quotes about meaningful. Um, Rewiring is easier and stronger when you focus on things that are are meaningful to you. And this comes from somebody I know that you've read, Norman Doidge. Our thoughts can change the material structure of our brains. Our thoughts can change the material structures of our brains. We are what we repeatedly do, Aristotle. 2,400 years ago. And the ancient Greeks didn't even know that we thought with our brain, they thought it was packing material to keep our head a nice round shape. Um, they thought that we thought with our heart. And you know why that is? It feels like that. If it's well, sometimes not we do. You, what's that? Sometimes we do. We think with our heart. And yeah. there are neuronal connections between yeah. this area and yeah. this area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but that heart, I would call that the amygdala or maybe the hippocampus. Is probably where our heart is. That's where our soul is too. I'm pretty sure. You think so? I might get some pushback about that. (laughs) Michael Marcinich, if it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. That was my interpretation of what he said. But what he said is, if it's not important to you, it won't be important to your brain and no positive change will occur. Rather than recover to do what you care about, use what you care about to recover. And that's from my book. Thank you very much. Oh, good job, Pete. I'm telling you. And then I have one more thing. I am so sorry. No, because I have one more thing too. You do? Well, you do do your thing and I'll do my thing and then we'll get get out of these people's ears. Go. Well, I just wanted to bring it back to Dr. Taub and what it says. So in that, the Ginger, what's her name? Ginger Campbell podcast. Ginger Campbell, yeah. Where I loved one of the interviews that I listened to with those two. And he said that the success of the constraint-induced therapy program was based on the home program. So they would only do it with people who would agree to do the home program. And if they found out somebody wasn't doing it, and therapists always know, like you, you always know because the carryover doesn't last. The, the improvement doesn't occur if you're not doing it. And I just think, I thought, you know, here's more evidence for the home program. And as therapists, I think what, based on what you were saying with the coaching model, that's more of an empowerment model. And maybe if people start to feel more empowered in their care, they would be more likely to carry over 
although I do know that it is a long and arduous journey for some folks. Yeah, he t- often talked about transferring what you're doing in the clinic to your everyday. And that's yeah. kind of like what constraint-induced therapy does. You know, therapists like it because they're not the bad guy. The constraint is the bad side. So mm-hmm. you have an oven mitt on your stronger side, forcing use of your more affected side. Now, if you bring, you can bring that home, and they do. I mean, his original protocol was six hours a day with a clinician, and then 90% of all waking hours at home. Yeah, that, that's tough. Our modified protocol was five hours a day at home. We, we shifted the burden to the home, and so they had to be willing to do it at home. And, you know, it wasn't for everybody. And they mm-hmm. usually had to, we required, although it wasn't always true, we required a caregiver to be at home because yeah. they might need help setting things up so that they could do it with their weaker limb. Yeah, I'm excited for our constraint-induced therapy episode. When is that? I don't know. I'm still excited about it. Let's get through this one. (laughs) Okay. So, I got one other thing. So, there's this continuum from harder to learn to easy to learn. It's kind of like the algebra versus cell phone versus children kind of thing. Uh, What's easier to learn? Stuff that you care about. So, you could pick something that's uninteresting and unimportant like a pegboard. A lot of clinicians do this, putting pegs in a pegboard. Um, and I was just on, remember Salmon's and Preston? This is a catalog that's used by therapists to, to buy stuff, therapy kinds of stuff. I got it's, my picture taken with Fred when Fred. I was Fred Salmon's. Oh, really? Yeah. What year was that? Oh, quite a while ago. 1937. No, maybe not that long not ago. you. No. So, so is he nice to you? I mean, from what I remember, it was a conference. You know how you walk you walk up and oh, okay. get your picture taken. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Now they call it like Rollian. They changed the name of the whole thing. But I, I just have to say that, so there is the nine-hole peg test, something that, that is a great outcome measure. It's how quickly can you put pegs in nine holes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed something on the, on the Salmon's Press and a Rollian uh, thing that just blew my mind. So there's this semicircle pegboard mm-hmm. that you put pegs in, right? Okay. And um, it's $266. But shipping we... is free. Oh, that's you great. You buy stuff from the kid's store, you know, from a toy store yeah. off of Amazon, and it's basically a pegboard, and it doesn't cost $266. So, well, Why don't we pick up money? We could pick up money, silverware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why do we need pegs? We don't need pegs. How, how salient is that? That's not very salient. So oh, good move, God, no. We could move up. We could, so that's uninteresting and unimportant. Okay. And a lot of therapists will just stick them there with a pegboard and go do that. You, know, that's, mm-hmm. you could pick something interesting. Sorry. You could pick something that's uninteresting, but it is important. Unscrewing the caps on your meds. Not that's particularly interesting, one. but sure. you need to get it done. You could pick something interesting, but unimportant, like doing a video game. It is interesting. It engages your mind, but how important is it in a skill for your everyday life? And then finally, you get up to this vault, vaunted area, um, interesting and important, something like a hobby. And then there's even higher than that, whatever's vital for you to do. Yeah. 
sounds an awful lot like occupational therapy, <laughs> the way it was intended to be done. Oh, you might want to edit that piece out. No, I don't think we should at all. I don't either. This is something I try to tell therapists all the time. When you take all the neuroscience and you look at it all, I swear neuroscientists say, um, wow, repetitive practice. Who does a lot of that? And they look down that long hallway and they see a therapist already doing it and having done it since the early 1900s. And they go, well, it should be challenging. Who vectors in challenge? And they look down that long hall and they see a therapist down there. They've been doing it since the, 19, the early 1900s. And then they go, repetitive and it should be challenging. It should be meaningful. Who does that? OTs do that. Everything. So you guys are in the perfect position to leverage the great neuroscience that we have. And um, I swear, I don't think, I think neuroscientists are like jealous or maybe they're angry or I don't know. But every time they turn around, they see a therapist having done it for decades and decades and decades. It's just take what, here's what I would say. If you want to know what a neuroscience would say about rehab, they'd say, we agree with everything you're doing. Just put it on steroids. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. Don't overthink it. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about repetitive practice because I think I just think a lot of therapists don't understand it. And so we'll clarify this for them and they'll be able to implement it. And uh, if I may mention, I had someone message me the other day and say they were listening to the bilateral training episode and couldn't wait to use it at work. Oh, good for them. Yeah. The, the thing I really want to help answer with regard to repetitive practice in our next episode is the question you'd always get, which is, well, how many? Right. And I think we have some good numbers for you. I'm excited because I saw some of those numbers. You did. Okay. We'll see yeah. how this goes. We'll see if our numbers uh, agree. Okay. We're, we're agreeing with it. Okay. Well, thanks, Deb. I had a ball as usual. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. I feel like I could be a better therapist now, Pete. So thanks. Well, just do what you're doing. Put it on steroids. Tell your students that too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.